0: And Welcome to Women in Confidence with Vanessa Murphy, the podcast that discusses all things to do with confidence at work. This is a podcast for women who want to know more about where their confidence supports them and where it can let them down in their careers. I'm your host Vanessa Murphy, confidence coach, HR expert and podcaster. Every fortnight this podcast will introduce you to women who have interesting stories to tell around confidence. Through their stories, you will realise that even women who appear to have it all have had confidence wobbles. But by listening to them, you will take away what they do to remain top of the confidence game. So I'm delighted to announce that Lindy Alexander is joining me today as the first writer to be a guest on Women in Confidence. Lindy was a sign language interpreter and social worker for 10 years before she pursued her passion for writing. She is now an award-winning freelance writer who regularly contributes to numerous Australian and international publications, which you may have heard of, such as Delicious, The Australian, The Age, The Guardian, The Telegraph, and Travel and Leisure Southeast Asia, just to name a few. We're not writing about the lovely things in life, which for Lindy is food and travel, Lindy creates contents for universities, businesses, and non-profits. In 2017, Lindy started the Freelancers Year, a popular blog that helps fellow freelancers write, earn and thrive. And just last year, Lindy launched two online courses for aspiring and established freelance writers. Okay, Lindy, welcome to the Women in Confidence podcast. Lovely to have you here. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks for having me, Vanessa. Well, let's start by talking about your current occupation, your profession, and that is a freelance content writer. How did you get into writing? Because it wasn't where you started.
1: No, I took rather a circuitous route to get to writing. So I've always loved writing, but I felt like I only really had two pathways if I was going to pursue it and that was to become a journalist or to become an author and my views of journalists, which were so misguided, but were that I was going to be knocking on people's doors, shoving microphones in their faces, asking them really hard questions. Or I was going to be an author with all these manuscripts in my drawer and never be published and living on the breadline. And so I had these really fixed ideas of what a writer was. So I never really contemplated pursuing it. So I actually trained as a social worker and I worked in social work for 10 years. And then when I was pregnant with my son in 2011 and 2012, I had some time to think. I think pregnancy gives you a pause and a time in your life where people aren't expecting anything from you. So I harboured this little secret dream of becoming a freelance writer, writing for magazines and newspapers. So I did what most people do when they have a little dream is that you take to the internet. And I found a short course in feature writing I only told my partner. I didn't tell anybody else. I enrolled. And by the time I'd finished the course, I had a small article published. I'd been paid for writing. And that to me blew my mind. And I thought people are going to pay me for my words. And so for the next few years, I finished off my PhD, I worked two days a week as a social worker, I was raising my kids. And on the side, I was having articles published. And this little dream of becoming a freelance writer started to become a reality. And in 2017, I went full time as a freelance writer.
0: Amazing. And you said during your pregnancies that or during your pregnancy, sorry, that when you took this course, you only told your partner, why didn't you tell anybody else?
1: I think in those early stages of having an idea or a vision of something that you want and that you've kept secret for a long time anyway, I felt like that was so fragile. I didn't want anybody else's expectations. I just wanted to take a step towards writing, see what happened. I didn't want people asking me about it. I didn't want to wear their expectations of, like when you when are you going to get published by the New Yorker or you know, in Good Weekend? I just didn't want anybody else to know, so I kept it. I kept it to myself, and it felt like a really private, exciting thing to undertake.
0: And when did you decide to leave social
1: work behind and move full time into content writing? So I decided when I was pregnant with my daughter. So that was twenty. 14. She was born in 2015. I had another break from my social work job. From maternity leave, I'd finished my PhD and I felt burnt out, I think. I felt burnt out from doing my PhD and focusing on social work and being a social worker. There was heaps of travel involved in my social work position because I was traveling around Victoria, visiting families in their home And I just thought, I'm ready to walk away from it, which surprised me because when I was a social worker, that was all I could imagine doing. I felt so centred in that profession. But it was interesting to notice that I pursued freelance writing and that became a bigger and bigger part of how I viewed myself.
0: And when we spoke last time, you talked about compassion fatigue, which you got when you're a social worker. Can you just explain to people who are listening what compassion fatigue is and and how did that manifest itself for you?
1: In all those caring professions, you are absorbing a lot of trauma or people's stories, their experiences, and I think it's that fine balance between not wanting to put a barrier up and being really cold and robotic in the way that you deal with people and the way that you interact and develop relationships – but also that you do need to protect your sense of self. And I, in my early days, had some really um, big experiences with families and what they were going through. And I was a young social worker, and I didn't necessarily feel like I had the skills in order to process that. Nor did I feel like I had the support to process that once I was back at work. And I think you can deal with that for a certain amount of time, but. Compassion fatigue is really that sense of giving and giving and giving and not being, not having any support or the skills to kind of fill your coffers back up in order to keep on giving. And so I just felt empty, really. Like I felt at a loss and that I wasn't doing the families that I was working with um, a, a real service anymore because I felt so burnt out.
0: And you said you felt empty. How did you? Sort of refill your bucket. What was your approach to self love and self compassion?
1: Taking that maternity leave, even though that was kind of a byproduct, I think having time away from that, I think only working two days a week was really good. We were living in the country, my job was based in the city. So I did feel every time that I left work, and I know that it probably sounds that like it was terrible. I mean, I loved my job. And I think that was part of it is that I wanted to visit these families and support them and be with them because they were going through some really difficult things. So I loved my work, but it just took its toll. So I think when I left work um, those in the afternoons and I would get in my car, I think that sense of physical space as well as time, I would listen to podcasts about all different things, And I felt like that for me was starting to fill back up my coffers, but I did almost feel like the working day would come around too quickly. And my priorities changed. I wanted to be close to home. I wanted more time with my kids. And I also was noticing that I was thinking all the time about writing and story ideas that I could pitch to magazines and newspapers. And I noticed that there was a shift in my mental space where I was focusing my attention. So rather than thinking about families and my position at and what I could do to support them. I was spending more time thinking, I wonder if I could write a story about this or I going down to the news agents and picking up new magazines and feeling really inspired by that.
0: And you specialise in health, lifestyle and travel. How did you get into that? Or did you decide to, to specialise in those areas?
1: No, I didn't decide to. I think when you're starting out, there's that old advice of write what you know. And so for me, I was knee deep in nappies. So I was writing a lot of parenting articles and writing from my own experience. And then I moved into using some of my social work knowledge in health and disability and writing those kind of articles. And I've always loved food and cooking and baking and I'm always interested in food. So when I go into a bookshop, I go to the cookbook section, like that is my happy place. And so I was like, I wonder if I could write about food. And because we live in a little regional town in Victoria that is a big food scene, I started writing about cafes that were opening here. And so it was just this gradual transition from parenting and health into lifestyle food and then eventually travel.
0: And do you have an agent? I mean, how do you get your, how do you position yourself in in lots of publications and in the media?
1: You pitch. So you write an email to an editor and you say, I have this idea for your publication and this is my idea. Are you interested? It, it really is as basic as that. And at the start, I was pitching ideas that were cringeworthy, really. I was pitching ideas that anyone would have pitched. So I remember pitching a parenting publication that doesn't exist anymore uh, about an idea of different types of nappies and you could almost hear the editor rolling her eyes at me as she replied because she was like we get pictures like this all the time and there is she said it in a very nice way but there is nothing different or interesting or unusual about this idea and that was a real wake-up call for me it was like I am a new writer I need to bring something unique different, a new angle to these stories that I'm pitching them. And slowly I honed my skills in being able to spot a story, not just a topic like nappies.
0: And just going back to you reaching out to editors, I mean, that's that can be quite scary to people who really want to be published, but there's this barrier of this editor. How did you have the confidence to just go for it
1: and, and write? To, to the editors? It's such a good question. I think for a lot of freelance writers, that fear of rejection or aspiring freelance writers, that fear of rejection holds them back because they anticipate what they think might happen on the other end. For me, I was like it. there was a bit of a thrill in crafting an idea that I thought was great for a publication and sending it off. And so I think for me, I was chasing that kind of little high of sending it off and feeling like, oh, I've done it, and then waiting for their reply. And over the years, I got better at just sending ideas and not sitting and refreshing constantly my inbox because editors are busy. And usually if they don't reply to you, they're not interested in a story. But I think I had success not immediately, but within two or three pitches, I think for writers who don't have that kind of success in getting a commission within a couple of pitches, it can be really dispiriting and you can feel like it's your fault when actually what I've learned is there are so many reasons why your idea doesn't get picked up. It might be the wrong time. The editor might miss it. They've already run a story on that. There are lots of reasons, but I think that we can personalise it and feel like they hate me, I'm doomed, I'm not meant to be a freelance writer. So for me, I think my plan was take action. I don't have any control over whether they like my idea, whether they commission me, but I've done this course. I want to take action on what I've learned. So I just didn't think too much about anticipating what next. All I could do was control writing ideas and sending them out.
0: And that's a lovely message around rejection because rejection is an awful feeling. And I think it once you felt it once, it maybe prevents you from then taking further action. But it sounds like you managed to get through that.
1: Is rejection different for you now? Yeah, I think that I've learned that there are lots more good ideas. So if you get a no, that's not your life's work In bundled up into one idea, that you've only got one feature story idea in you and then that's it. Like once one editor says no, then it's your dream is punctured. Because the thing is that idea might not be right for that publication, but you can repurpose it and pitch it elsewhere. And sometimes I've pitched ideas to Three, four different publications, the same idea, and editors have said no, 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 no. And then the last editor has said, yes, we'll take it. So I think a bit of it is around just being reliably consistent in terms of pitching those ideas. And I think that I thought, if I get rejected, it's not me they're rejecting, they're just saying this idea is not right for us. And I see that as, on a good day, I see that as a learning opportunity. I'm getting feedback from them about what isn't working. And like I said, editors are busy. So if you do get a reply and it is a no, then you've started that relationship with them. And that actually gives you an opportunity to say, thanks so much for letting me know. I'm going to send you a couple more ideas by the end of next week. So you start that conversation with them rather than thinking, that's it. They don't want to ever work with me again. I'm done.
0: And do you have a process from idea through to writing and sending
1: it off How, what what is that process in which you do that so usually i have an idea and that comes from all different places for me in the early days it came from what I was living and what I was experiencing and being at friends houses and hearing the conversations and thinking ah I wonder if there's something in that so for example I was at a friend's house this is years ago when I first started but they were all talking about going to a mutual friend's wedding where they already had children and they'd made the decision to get married after having children. And then I was at the library the next day and our librarian mentioned something about getting married after having children. And I was thinking, is this common? Is this starting to increase? So I did a little bit of research and yes, the stats are saying that more and more Australians were getting married after they had kids rather than before. So I did a little bit of research, thought I reckon I could find people to talk about this and then I pitched that idea. So for me, it's about having the idea kind of substantiating it, making sure that it's got legs because sometimes you've got this great idea, but when you dive into it, it's really just a sentence or two. There's not going to be enough material that's going to sustain 800 words or 1500 words. And then pitching it, finding the right publication, making sure they haven't run something similar in the past or in the last 18 months, and then sending off your idea
0: and i guess when you're starting out as a freelance writer or freelance anything a consultant the desire or the i don't mean don't even know what the word is to take on everything you know because you want the work and you want your name out there was that the same for you? Do you did you take on everything that you could everything. when you first started out?
1: <laughs> everything and then more some because the first time that an editor comes to you and says, "Will you write this for me?" rather than you having to pitch all the time, that is thrilling. But it means that you feel, in a sense of, um, you're in a privileged position because you know lots of writers are pitching to these editors. So when they come and offer you work then you feel like you have to say yes and it feels like an obligation. And I do think I was talking to a really experienced freelance friend yesterday and even she was saying that she still feels that sense of needing to say yes to things because you want to maintain that relationship with people. So I think no matter how experienced you get, there is that sense of being offered an opportunity and and feeling that yes needs to be your answer.
0: And is there an element of when you are approached, it sort of satisfies your ego in a way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it really, um, it really can confirm to you that you are a valuable person and a valuable writer to to that editor. And yeah, you. Sometimes it's hard to get over it yourself in that sense. How do you get over yourself? I look at my work week and think there is no way, or I think am I prepared to work in the evenings? And I was. When I started out, I did work in the evenings and I did work on weekends. I'm much stricter now. And I also know I have this philosophy of there's more where that came from. If I say no, it's not the end of the road. It doesn't mean that they'll never come back to me they and editors understand that you're not always going to be at their beck and call and some editors I am at their beck and call because I have a great relationship with them they know they can rely on me and 99% of the time I will say yes to whatever they offer me but there are some where I think taking on this work is not going to be worth a the money or the time away from my family or the stress so I say no.
0: And have you taken on a piece of work and then
1: regretted it all the time (laughs) less now but I think in the early days when I started then branching into writing for corporate clients yeah I can remember I was offered this really big opportunity and I was so flattered that they thought that I could do it and that I was capable and it was a really big chunk of money for us so I said yes And I ignored that gut feeling of you can't do this. And there's a lot of talk, isn't there, around people saying, say yes to things before you're ready. You'll learn as you go. But actually, for me, for this job, it was beyond what I could do. It was around health policy. And they, this corporate client were initially attracted to me because of my background in social work. But I really don't have a policy brain. And I took it on. And I just felt like I was drowning in it. And I had to, I think it's probably only the first and last time that I've ever had to say to a client, I can't do this. And I have not misled you, but I just, now that I'm into the project, I realise that I'm not the right person for you.
0: And that takes enormous amount of confidence to face up to the client and say, say those things. How did you, can you remember that conversation?
1: I felt sick about having that conversation with them because I felt like I was letting them down. I felt like I, I had known that feeling in my gut had grown and I felt like I've known this for probably a couple of weeks and I haven't said anything because I've just tried to grit my teeth and come to terms with what it is I'm doing, but actually I am floundering here. Um, they were really gracious about it and I think they were grateful that I had let them know. And I think probably in the corporate world, this happens more than I expected, but I felt like I had failed, failed them. And I also felt like I had failed myself by saying yes, when I really in my heart of hearts knew that I shouldn't have taken that on.
0: And so based on that experience, what can you advise listeners if they find themselves in that situation?
1: I think to take some time and really think about are you flattered by this and is this going to be a stone around your neck? If you take it on, do you really have the capacity and the capability to see this project through because it's going to be more damaging to you and to the client? Or even if you're writing for editors, like sometimes I've been offered work from editors to write feature articles and I think this is not I don't think I'm going to be able to pull this off in a way that they want me to, like profiling somebody. Um, And so I think being up front rather than being a people pleaser saying yes and then knowing that that the future you is going to really resent, present you for saying yes.
0: And you talk about people pleaser and many women will probably be nodding and that really resonates with them. Do you feel now you're more experienced as a writer and pitching, that you are less of
1: a people pleaser. I'm still a pretty big people pleaser. I like to I like to do the right thing and I like for people to feel like I'm reliable and easygoing and a yes person. I do think more and more that I'm able to be really respectful and say no no to things, especially if it doesn't work for me or my family or financially because I set myself financial targets each month. So having those to refer back to means that I can more confidently say no no to things, whereas in the past I would have worried about what they would have thought about me if I said no, whereas I can refer back to my spreadsheet and think it's not really going to be that smart for me to spend 8 eight hours on an article that's paying, I don't know, $100. Mm.
0: Now let's move on to your the award-winning element of that. What was the award you won and, and what was the piece of work that you
1: did to win the award? So recently I won the Australian Society of Travel Writers Award. So that was in 2020, so last year, for uh, Food Story of the Year. So it was a food story that I wrote about a trip to India
0: Amazing. Well, I want to talk about travel writing because that feels like my dream job, um, except I'm not very good at writing, so perhaps not ideal. But travel writing, you said to me um, last time we spoke was incredibly difficult to get into. How did you get into it?
1: It is really competitive and everyone will tell you that it's really competitive to get into. So it had been on my radar for a little while, and like I said to you, writing starting to write those food stories about this region made me wonder whether I could also write food stories or travel stories about other regions. And I had some friends who were travel writers and who, like me, didn't have a background in journalism or freelance writing, but had transitioned from other professions like teaching. And I could see that they were having success. And it looked like A lot of work but it also looked like they had these incredible opportunities like you said that most people dream about so I started speaking to them I started learning about it because there are lots of rules and things that you don't as an outsider even as a freelance writer there are a lot of things in the travel writing world that are specific to that in terms of how all that works, how you pitch, how you work with tourism boards, that I had a lot of learning to do. So I kind of cut my teeth in this local area and then spoke to people, did some reading and found out, okay, maybe I can start pitching some travel stories to my regular editors about different places. Tell me
0: one of your favourite trips. What's been the best place that you've visited as part
1: of your job? That's such a big question. I think, you know, the first place that comes to mind, I think, is Canada because so in the early 2000s, I'm really going to date myself here, I met my partner in Canada. So we were both, he is from the UK and he was working in the ski fields and so was I and we met. And I we hadn't been back and we'd been talking about going back to Canada. And then in 2019, I had an opportunity to go back on the, to go on the Rocky Mountaineer. So from Vancouver to Banff on that incredible train that snakes through the Rockies. And how can you say no? And I had a commission from a magazine and I just think being back in Canada and the mountains and the water and the chateaus and as we pulled into Banff, which is where Pete and I met, it started snowing and I was like, this is like a magical storybook. And we had these incredible experiences in a spa, you know, like a Nordic spa where we went from uh, boiling water into freezing cold water and then warmed up by an open fire. I think those kind of experiences are incredible.
0: But what are the downsides of travel writing?
1: Being away for me from my family is a really downside because often you're in these incredible places and you don't have anyone to turn to and be like, look at this, look at what is happening. So you might be staying at this incredible hotel or or having a helicopter flight, but you're like, I don't have my loved one to share this with. So that's a downside. The days are huge. If you're on an organised trip with um, a public relations firm or a tourism body, they want you to do and see as much as you can so you have lots and lots of material to write about. But that inevitably means... If you're doing an international flight, often you're landing, you might have half an hour, an hour in your room, then you've got to have a shower and then you're down for welcome drinks and then you'll be out for dinner. You might go out to something after that and then you probably have a a 7am, 7.30 start in the morning and that will go all the way through till 10 the next night. And you're just repeating that. So... It's the, my daughter, who's six, often refers to it as holidays. Mum's going on holiday. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. I really feel like when I get home, I'm like, I need a break. Like, i it's almost, it's just this whirlwind of experiences. So even though you might be staying in these incredible places, it's rare that you would have an afternoon to just totally luxuriate and go for a swim and go for a walk or explore the local village you're pretty much scheduled the whole time.
0: It still sounds like a dream job to me.
1: It is, it is.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to switch it slightly now. Um, I ask this of every guest that comes on. Do you think that confidence is nature, so something just about you, or is it nurture?
1: That's a good question too. Okay. I think probably confidence is like health. So with good health, once you've got it, you have a a baseline of health. So I think probably everyone has a baseline of confidence. But there are things that you can do to amplify that. And when you've got it, like health, when you've got confidence, you almost don't notice how it's assisting you in your daily life. It's just something that you have. And then when you don't have confidence, and I think it can be eroded very quickly, like health can be, or over time, when you don't have it, It impacts everything, I think. And so I think there are things that you can do to build your confidence, but I do think that at its heart there is a base level that people seem to have and I don't think it's generalised throughout your life. I have got people that I work with, writers that I work with who are so confident about their skills as, I don't know, a a chef or um, they might be home renovating and they can do that but when they come to pitching an idea to an editor they have no confidence
0: one thing we haven't actually touched on is and you mentioned it is your phd
1: what was that in so that was in social work and it was really prompted by my question that i had which was how do people in my profession reflect on their practice So not just what went well today, what didn't go well today, but how do we work with other families, clients, whatever you want to term the people that we work with, how do we think about our own values and biases and beliefs and how do they impact the way that we work with people? So that's what I explored for my PhD thesis and really what I found out was there wasn't a lot of support or systems in order to reflect. A lot of people were like, what went well about that session with that family or that client? What could we do differently next time? But there wasn't a lot of support for self-reflection and really thinking about, why do I find this family easier to work with than that family? And you apply your PhD to your current role? That's a good question. I think I apply... The research skills that I learned, probably not the content so much, but I think getting through my PhD was an act of sheer grit and determination because I'm not someone who is very good at finishing things. I'm very good at starting things. like I'm an ideas person, but then actually finishing and getting things done is something that I struggle with. So, I think it showed me that if you just put your balm on the seat and put in the work, things will get done. And it's uncomfortable. And lots of time I thought, what am I doing? Like, I don't have, I'm not brainy. I don't have the capacity to do this. I'm not an academic. But I think just going through that process, is something that I still carry with me, that ability to just get something done, albeit in four years rather than three.
0: But the content of your PhD, you said, was around values and beliefs. And I find a lot of the people that I talk to or my clients don't actually know what their values are or their beliefs. And I think it's because they're so wrapped up in the busyness of life. They don't find that space to say, "Well, what actually do I value? Do you know what your values are?
1: Yeah, I think I do. And recently I've been thinking about how my values are also linked to my, I don't know if they're my blind spots, but maybe my weaknesses. So I'll give you an example. I've been thinking like one of my values is generosity, of being a giver. And I think from my career choice as a social worker, but also I'm someone, I'm an acts of service person. So if someone's having a baby or if a friend's in trouble, like I will bake for them and cook for them. And I think that's a core value of mine of being generous. But I do think that in my professional life, that value of generosity can come back to bite me because I am like, yes, of course I can do that. Yes, you you also need me to now write this which you hadn't told me about before, no problem, I can do that. You need me to write this in 24 hours for you, yes, of course I can. And so I think my sense of wanting to give people what they want also is a hindrance as well as a good value to have.
0: And are you good at receiving?
1: No, I don't know. I don't know if any acts of service people are good at receiving. Um, I find it really hard. My pleasure and my joy is in giving is not really in receiving, but I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate receiving, but I find it hard too.
0: This might feel like an uncomfortable segue around your giving is that now you essentially you give through your online program. So you teach people what you do and how successful you've come. Can you tell me about what online programs that you run?
1: Yeah. So what happened was in 2017, when I went full-time as a freelance writer, I was looking for information, podcasts, support about how I could be successful, whatever that meant. And I really found very little. So I thought I'm going to start a blog and I am going to write all about my experiences and share my knowledge be generous with my knowledge about what's working, what's not working. So I did that blog. A few years later, people were coming to me and saying, do you offer one-on-one coaching? Because they could see that I was having success. And I I also posted my monthly income as well. So I think people were like, you're making good money from being a freelance writer. I would like to do that too. Can you teach me? So I started offering coaching. And then my days were taken up with coaching people, which I loved, but I just, was finding that I didn't have much time to actually do the writing. So I thought, what if I could distill all my knowledge into courses for people so that they could go through the process and learn the strategies and systems that have helped me, but I don't have to talk them through it. And so I started and procrastinated and last year, so June 2020, launched my onla- my first online course. So that's for established writers who want to earn $100,000 a year or more from their writing.
0: And you said you were procrastinating.
1: What stopped you from launching that program? That is a million-dollar question. I think I wanted it. People wanted it. People were asking me all the time, when is your course coming? And I just felt so fearful about what would happen if it wasn't going to work, putting myself out there. What if my strategies didn't work for these people? And I had the course sitting there. I just didn't launch it. And finally, one of my friends who had just been putting up with me, (laughs) complaining about um, how I wasn't launching, said to me, Lindy, It's like the Boxing Day sales and everybody has got their nose and hands pressed up to the glass trying to get in and you're just standing back being like, "Mm, not sure that I will open today. She's like, just do it. And I thought, she's right. I I have to do it. And it felt so incredibly scary because the idea of it was great, but the reality of actually launching, putting myself out there, saying to people, this is what I've created was so scary for me
0: and how is it going so far?
1: It's so good. I'm so glad that I've done it. Um, It's amazing. And the people within my community, and now I've got two online courses, one for beginners, but they're getting incredible results. And I think I'm so glad to be part of that. And I love showing up for that community and being generous in my knowledge. And when people say, oh, you're so generous, I think, oh, that's so nice like it feels really affirming to me that I can share my experience and my strategies and techniques with people who really want to implement them
0: so you must be very grateful to your friend who gave you that nudge
1: I'm so grateful
0: we all need friends like that then when we're procrastinating (laughs) we need a friend who's just going to give us that maybe a kick or or even just a nudge yeah do you have any other techniques or
1: uh, mentors who support you in your your work for a long time i relied on fellow freelance writers and especially online there's big communities of freelance writers and i found that so invaluable and i think if i didn't have those people in the beginning i probably would have got disheartened or just felt like i was i was i was struggling and everybody else was doing well like when you didn't hear back from editors or you got ideas rejected or you got asked to rewrite a story so i think having people to say yeah that's happened to me too is really helpful and then in the last few years as i've ventured into digital products online courses there's a whole new world there in edupreneurism, which I knew nothing about. And so yeah, I've invested really heavily in myself in terms of joining group coaching programs, masterminds, to really help me deliver the best programs that I can.
0: And how can people find out more about you? Because they may there may be people who are listening who are aspiring freelance writers and think. Lindy is exactly the person I need to, to reach out to. How can people find you, Lindy?
1: The best spot to go to is my website, which is the freelancersyear.com. And so there you'll find all, so it's about four years worth of different blog posts that show you how to get started in freelance writing or corporate writing, or if you're an established writer, how to make more money. And then there's a courses section too. So if people are interested in enrolling in either of my courses, they can find out more info there.
0: And you still write your blog?
1: I do, yeah. So I send out a newsletter each week. Um at the moment, I'm experimenting and I'm sending out a newsletter three times a week. And I'm really enjoying it. The people within my community who are on my newsletter list are just lovely and I reply to everyone and often people are really surprised that it's me and it's I don't have a team around me but I don't it's just me and so it comes into my inbox and I get back to everyone because people were so kind to me in the early days when I was starting and I had a question about something that I want to be able to give that back
0: and what's next for you where do you
1: see your career evolving I don't know that's such a big question. I think with the pandemic, travel riding has been put on hold. Well, definitely international travel. I mean, at the start when the pandemic hit, I mean, I think I had two or three international trips lined up. I had the same number of domestic trips lined up and they all just fell over. And it's really unsure at the moment. And also I had heaps of international trips in 2019 and I was pretty tired. So it has definitely given me a chance to think, what do I want? I still want to continue writing because I love it, but I also want to grow that part of my business that is helping writers, both aspiring and established writers, to hit their goals because lots of them want to have freedom and flexibility they want to maybe make more money so that they can write their novel or do a ceramics class or whatever that is. And I think that is incredible to be able to support people to do that.
0: And then finally, before we wrap up, what's your one piece of advice that you can give to people who are aspiring freelancers who are probably not confident taking that
1: step? I think the confidence doesn't come first. I think knowing that confidence comes from taking action and it can feel really scary. And, in fact, I think everything new that you do, you know, there's that saying, new level, new devil. I think everything new is going to stretch you and push you. But I think sometimes we're like, oh, well, it's going to take us so long Am I really going to be able to learn all about this world of freelance writing? Whereas that time is going to pass anyway. So imagine in a year's time if you've taken this step and you're starting to write articles for different magazines or newspapers or companies, it's possible. And I think that feels really exciting to think about the possibilities of taking the action first rather than waiting for the confidence to come.
0: That is an amazing piece of advice. Thank you. And thank you, Lindy, for taking part in this podcast. Um, it's been amazing having you on as a guest. So thank thank you. you. You've
1: got such great questions.
0: <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Women in Confidence, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, then please like it, share it, comment on it, and if you want to, sponsor it. If you'd like to take part in my podcast or know somebody who would make a perfect guest, then please email me on contact at vanessa-murphy.com. That's contact at vanessa-murphy.com. Until next time.